When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back to Women vs. Hollywood, the podcast that explores the fall and rise of women in film. I'm your host, journalist and author Helen O'Hara. Hello, welcome back. Thanks for joining us again. And in this episode, we are going to be looking at the studio era. Now, you may look around at Warners and Disney and think to yourself, well, we're still in the studio era. And yes, you're kind of correct. But technically speaking, as usually used by historians, the studio era lasted from the early 1920s until the end of the 1940s. So this was a period where film was treated as an almost factory product, a way to feed the insatiable demands of early audiences and keep them coming back to the cinema multiple times a week to see new films every single time, possibly even a new slate of films with those earlier, shorter movies. So the priority for filmmakers, for the executives in charge of these studios, was to make as many films as possible as fast as possible. Today we'll be discussing how the studio era began and what it meant for women, for people of colour and for LGBTQ plus people in Hollywood. We'll also be looking at how women today still face many of the same challenges that their predecessors did in the 1930s and 40s and how, in fact, the studio era system really established and codified a lot of the barriers that women still have to overcome now. So to help me explore this time in Hollywood's history, I'll be speaking to Shelley Stamp, who also contributed to our episode on the silent era. She is Professor of Film and Digital Media at the University of California, Santa Cruz, and is a leading expert on women and early film culture. But first, you're going to be hearing from Susan Kemp, who's the Programme Director for Film, Exhibition and Curation at the University of Edinburgh. She is also herself a filmmaker. She made the documentary feature In the Light in 2020, which explores how history obscures women's achievements and renders them invisible. So I asked Susan how the studio system first came into being. The studio system in itself was a bit of a cartel to begin with. Once there was a recognition that there was a huge profit to be made from um, the moving image and film, and once there'd been recognition that it could travel in units... You know, 90-minute unit could travel and could then be distributed widely. Then came the battle for films and for prints. And there was all sorts of sort of mafioso-type organisations in place. And there was lots of wars and battles. Um, even sprocket holes were licensed, for example, which meant that people had to licence the use of even sprocket holes. And, um, and rights became a really big issue. And within that sort of battleground, it did make sense for studios to emerge who could take control over the rights. So in, in a business model, there's a value chain where the different elements add value to each element. 
this is all in-house in a studio, whereas in terms of um, independent film, Peter Bloor did a model of called the independent film value chain, which is all the different elements from writing the script and development monies all the, end, all the way to sort of long tail distribution. And so in that studio house, they owned everything. They contained all their licenses. They owned the, the talent as well. It was all about managing and making sure they weren't at the mercy or vulnerable to, to those people who had author might have authority over different elements of what they were making and producing. And that meant, of course, they could control what was being made. They could control the profits and who was selling it and who was buying it. What happened out of that was, of course, logically, vertical integration. And vertical integration is basically where the studios also own the means of exhibition. So that meant that they could control what was seen in cinemas. If they'd made a hit and a miss, they would demand that the exhibitors would, if they wanted the hit and they wanted the people who were going to come into the cinema and buy the popcorn and make the money where they would make the money in the concession stands, they would, they would have to commit to be showing it, say, for three weeks in the big screen, but they would also have to commit their smaller screens to the lesser hits of the same studio. So this control was very, very difficult to have any input on outside that system. And it was mostly, you know, we know that it was mostly male directors, male executives, by far uh, dominated, uh, dominating the system. Can I just make a point on that? Yeah, which please. Which is that filmmaking didn't start as a sort of male-dominated practice. Um, it is, of course, once things are, are perceived to have value, then it becomes something that becomes male-dominated. So prior to the studio system, as film had emerged, their women's presence and women's creativity played an important role. And in the studio system, they were sort of, they were belittled, rather, their role in the writing community largely. There were still some women directors within the studio system, but largely they were, they were put into writing teams and where they could you know, be seen to be more secretarial. So the film industry was perceived as having value and therefore became more and more male-dominated. And that meant it became more and more difficult for women to sustain careers as filmmakers. Suddenly they were all seen as the exception to the rule, as you know, a weird little side note instead of as mainstream filmmakers in their own right. So I asked film academic Shelley Stamp about the ways that the studio system began to push women out of the film industry. What happens is that by the early 20s, film in the U.S. has become one of the most profitable industries in the entire country, really behind oil and uh, automobile manufacturing, right? It's an incredibly profitable industry. And power consolidates in a few studios in Hollywood whose names we still know, right? And those studios begin buying up theater chains and consolidating power, pushing out independent production companies, many of which are owned by women and people of color. So that happens, right? It becomes much harder to work independently. Trade guilds become more powerful and consolidate power and, again, tend to push out women and people of color. The, the film historian Karen Ward-Mahar has a, a really good argument about this, and, and her argument is that in order for the studios to consolidate power, they had to borrow substantial amounts of money from Wall Street banks. And in doing so, they adopted a kind of corporate culture, a masculinized corporate culture, and therefore excluded, began to exclude women. So it happens pretty swiftly, you know, so that by the early 20s, um, there are very few women still directing. Most of the independent production companies run by women have collapsed. 
you know, so it happens before sound comes in, right? It happens in that moment. And also, you know, in the 1910s in the U.S., the notion of kind of feminine respectability that gathers around white middle class women, that notion of femininity or the kind of femininity that's celebrated in the 1910s really shifts in the 20s. And the femininity that's celebrated is youthful and um, exuberant, right? The flapper model is very, is, is a little bit inconsistent with the idea of a, you know, professional woman like a director, right, running a set. So somebody like Lois Weber, who's, who's still trying to work in the 20s, right, after her production company collapses, says, you know, when she goes on a set in 1927, after 20 years in the film industry, she has this sort of startling realization that, that the male crew is not respecting her. And she's never experienced that before. But it's a new thing for her, you know, as this <laughs> very seasoned filmmaker to walk on a set and realize that the men are no longer respecting her because they're not used to working with women uh, in, in control, right? Women directors. How did the studio system kind of develop from that point? You know, and how did it change Hollywood for women kind of maybe more generally? Because it's not just directors, is it, that were, that were kind of forced out as the studio era took hold? Yeah. So there's a, a huge generation of, of female directors in the silent era. And there is arguably an even more important generation of female screenwriters in the silent era. All of the top screenwriters in the silent era were women. I mean, we can only imagine a world in which all of the top screenwriters are women. Um, and it, it is easier for women to continue in screenwriting, you know, into the studio era, into the sound era. But it's it too becomes a male-dominated profession. Directing is the hardest hit. Right. So Dorothy Arzner is the, really the only woman directing in Hollywood in the sound era. After she retires, Ida Lupino then is the only woman directing in the late 40s and into the 50s and early 60s. Um, it's not until the 1970s when you get uh, a new generation of female filmmakers. And as uh, Maya Montagna Smuckler talks about in her book, Liberating Hollywood, really, it, that generation is possible only through incredible activism behind the scenes in the trade guilds. The impact on female filmmakers is profound in the studio system in the sound era. And it's so profound that, you know, Arzner, whose work is fabulous, really gets kind of sidelined into directing women's pictures, you know, what we would now call chick flicks. And they're they're fantastic. And she does an amazing amount within that genre. But she's sort of kept in a lane, right? And then Lupino directs only because she leaves the studio system and founds her own independent production company with the explicit aim of making films that the studios, on topics the studios will not touch, you know, sexual assault, bigamy, pregnancy outside of marriage. I mean, just topics that the studios wouldn't ever, ever touch. So the impact of the studio system and the changes that, that start to take place in the early 20s is really profound on directors. As I said, I think screenwriters have it a little better. There's an interesting generation of female producers that emerges in the 1940s. So Virginia Van Up, um, Joan Harrison, uh, Harriet Parsons, all of whom are producing and all of whom have a profound impact on film noir when it emerges in the 1940s, right? Uh, this cycle of films that's all about gender <laughs> and, and all about, you know, a new kind of masculinity that's uh, wounded and neurotic and paranoid and a femininity that is strong and deadly and, and independent. I don't think it's any accident that female producers play an important role in that cycle of films in the late 40s. 
it definitely becomes harder for women to be in positions of creative control in the 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s. But there are interesting examples, right, of, of directors like Arsner and Lupino, of screenwriters, of uh, producers. Emily Carmen's work has shown that uh, stars in the 30s and 40s, female stars, were, were really assertive about getting creative control over their careers and negotiating more lucrative contracts. So th- there's opportunities, you know, within the system in those years, but it's it's difficult. Yeah, I mean, in terms of the screenwriters, it seems that most of the ones who survived mostly were were couples like it was a it was a you know husband and wife writing teams it seems like um looking at, at the biggest credits in that era which is i mean they were still women they were still there that's good but it, it's a bit limiting in terms of what they could do i guess yeah although there are still if you think about Frances marion so she's the, as an example of somebody who survived from the silent era right and 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 kind of hits her stride as a screenwriter in the studio era That was the trailer for The Champ, which was written by Frances Marion and won her the Academy Award for Best Story in 1932. She had also won an Oscar for Best Writing Achievement the previous year for her work on George Hill's prison drama, The Big House. Now, as Shelley mentioned, Frances Marion was one of the few female screenwriters to survive the transition from the silent era to the studio era because she had a long-term $3,500 a week contract with MGM Studios. The deal, in fact, made her one of Hollywood's highest paid screenwriters at the time. But of course, she would be. You know, she was hugely successful and had been for a number of decades. Largely speaking, the only other female screenwriters who survived into the studio era were part of a writing team with their husbands. In fact, the most visible women of the studio era were the stars. And despite their massive fame, they also had to fight for creative control under that system. So I asked Shelley Stamp to tell me more about how the female stars shaped the studio era. Many people know about the Olivia de Havilland lawsuit against Warner Brothers, which is 1943. And it uh, she, she wins, after a long battle, right, she wins the right for actors to freelance after they have obeyed the terms of their contract. And many people think of that as sort of the beginning of freelance work and the beginning of actors asserting control over their career and their star persona. And, and Emily Carmen shows that it's really the other way around, that de Havilland's lawsuit is really the culmination of a long period in the 30s and early 40s when many other women were trying to wrestle control of their careers. And so she talks about Barbara Stanwyck and Carol Lombard and Katharine Hepburn as, as actresses who really negotiated creative control, negotiated um, more lucrative contracts, and, and she talks about how that became part of their star persona as well, these kind of independent career women. And it's a really interesting argument, right? And, and her argument is that it's the female stars that were kind of at the forefront of this. 
ultimately, you know, getting back to somebody like Ida Lupino, Ida Lupino was in that same battle, right? Ida Lupino was suspended many times in the 30s for, for refusing to, to work on projects she didn't want to work on. And that's what propels her into directing and producing in the 40s, right? She, she wants to have a certain more creative control. And I should say, again, leaning on Carmen, that this kind of, and Carmen calls this independent stardom, that this is a privilege that, that white actresses have. And so she talks about uh, actresses like Anna Mae Wong or Lupe Velez, who really don't have that kind of creative control, right? Who are um, forced into racist caricature, regardless of whether it's a starring role or a supporting role, and who have a kind of forced independence because they're rarely under long-term contract, right? So, so it is important to acknowledge that. If there's one TV show that is going to make the whole of the UK feel that little bit better about what's going on in the world at the moment, then it has to be the Great British Bake Off, which has returned to our screens. And if you want to really understand why the dough didn't rise or why the cookie crumbled, then you'll want to hear the Bake Down podcast with my two co-hosts, former contestants Jane Beadle and Howard Middleton, who have been there and done it in the most famous baking tent of all, dissect each and every episode of the new 2020 series. Search the Bake Down wherever you get your podcasts and you'll be sure to find us. Now, LGBTQ plus people also felt the impact of the studio system. That's because the studios included strict morality clauses in their performers' contracts so that queer actors couldn't explore their sexuality openly, either on screen or, certainly, in daily life. I asked Shelley Stamp about how studios dealt with their stars' sexualities. I think there was incredible cover-up, <laughs> um, incredible successful cover-up for LGBTQ performers. I think directors were, a, like Dorothy Arzner or James Whale or George Cukor, were able to work and be relatively open in their professional lives in a way that, that was easier than it was for for actors, for sure. It, it seems like it wasn't really until, I guess, Confidential came along in the, what, the 50s that people were, anybody would talk about this openly because even talking about it was so beyond the pale, right? Right, right. Yeah, yeah. And even Confidential uses innuendo and even Confidential doesn't talk about it directly. Scandal rags of the time, like Confidential and Eyewitness, would sometimes expose LGBTQ plus actors, which could cause irreparable damage to their careers. Kay Francis, for example, was once a huge star on the Warner's lot, but actor William Powell told everyone on set that she must be a good actress because she played convincing love scenes with men. Suddenly, Kay Francis was no longer in prestigious A pictures, but instead stuck with supporting roles and B pictures. Some LGBTQ plus stars went into so-called lavender marriages, so they would basically marry someone of the opposite sex and act as if they were in a straight relationship. Actor William Haynes had his contract with MGM cancelled when he refused to take on a lavender marriage in 1934, but Rock Hudson chose to marry his agent's secretary when essentially given the same choice to cover up the fact that he was gay. But because some of these cover-ups were so successful, as Shelley mentioned, it's sometimes quite difficult to work out how many Hollywood marriages were actually fake. Self-described Hollywood pimp Scotty Bowers, when he wrote his book years later, 
claimed that virtually every Golden Age star was LGBTQ+. I mean, everybody was apparently having relations with everyone else at that time. For example, he said that Catherine Hepburn was a lesbian and that Spencer Tracy was either gay or possibly bi, making their relationship a lavender affair outside of Tracy's marriage to someone else. But it wasn't just LGBTQ plus people who had it difficult under the studio system. The careers of women of colour were also hugely affected by that system in a number of different and pernicious and almost entirely negative ways. Now, Susan Kemp also spoke to me about the legacy of women of colour in Hollywood and in particular, the work that needs to be done to preserve their histories. Clearly, there was very successful black women um, working within who, again, have been ignored and forgotten and who who took a certain amount of power. Um, I think one of the recent, fairly recent films, I think, is one of the most interesting comments on how um, the studio system in particular represented black women is Watermelon Woman, which is a fantastic documentary, faux documentary about two lesbian women working in film archives and exploring what film, how films were represented black characters and trying to find the legacy of black stardom in sort of the idea of archives and this comes back to who controls the archives as well who protects information who preserves information and for those many black successful black women working within the studio system who has preserved that history where is that history it's lost so again it's very difficult to say with absolute terms because we're looking at it from a contemporary lens in a very biased archive historical context which doesn't tell us that with any accuracy what was actually going on and we make lots of presumptions about the historical setting based on our knowledge now in the same way that we presume women weren't making films because they weren't discussed we presume black women weren't making films because they weren't discussed and we presume lots of things but actually they were but so the work needs to be done on and there's work going on and it's extraordinary work going on to uncover those great figures that have been forgotten and invisible and we even see that in the movies like the hidden um, hidden figures is a fantastic example of the work that needs to be done to um, re-represent the history that has been ignored and made invisible So I asked Shelley Stamp how women of colour were treated by the film industry in the studio era. Iman Wong is writing a book on Anime Wong, which is really fabulous. And and she's sort of looking at what Anime Wong does within the limited parts and screen time she's given to resist um, the racist caricature and to really sort of foreground the racism that's inherent in these roles. And it's a really interesting analysis. Another film historian, Miriam Petty, has looked at black stars in the 30s and the value that those stars, even in kind of limited parts and and sort of racist caricatures in in white-dominated films, but the importance that those roles and those actresses had for black audiences in the 30s, right? Um, And so she's looked at black newspapers and black magazines and the coverage that those stars had and the films had. So she's looked in particular at 1934 Imitation of Life film, right, which is about racism in a certain way, right? So there's there's really interesting work, I think, being done around actresses of color in this period who, as you say, are in a, a horrible bind, right? In order to work, they take parts that are marginal and they take parts that are racist, but there are ways in which sometimes they negotiate through that or their 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 viewers can kind of read in and around that and that, so there's very interesting work being done about that right now there's honey in the honeycomb 
There's sugar in the cane There's oysters in a real oyster stew And bubbles and sweet champagne That was an excerpt from the trailer for the 1943 musical Cabin in the Sky, in which Lena Horne sings Honey in the Honeycomb. The trailer titles describe Lena Horne as a sensational new song stylist, but she was also a dancer and an actress and a civil rights activist. Her career would span over seven decades of stardom, but during the studio era, even though she was signed up to a contract with a major studio, her performances often took the form of standalone sequences. So she'd basically come in, sing a song, and have essentially no impact on the plot whatsoever. So that they could be edited out when the film was shown in, frankly, more racist parts of the country. Now, although things are slowly beginning to improve nowadays for women, for people of colour, and for LGBTQ plus people in Hollywood, there are still issues that carry over from the studio era into the present day. And there are still people fighting against that system and the vestiges of it that have survived until now. So Susan Kemp spoke to me about the limits to the power that women can have within studios in today's Hollywood. I mean, we can look at contemporary practice and see examples of where Reese Witherspoon's production company, she as a star in the studio system in contemporary society didn't have much power at all. Uh, She seemed to have power when she was a a star making studio productions, Um, but her, her power is very, very limited and her power would only have existed during that period of time when she was seen to be attractive and had the sexual allure as defined by the male power brokers within the system. She has broken free of that and and capitalised on the on the limited power she did have to create greater power from that and and to to use money to make big productions that in in the studio system itself would always have been knocked back. Not necessarily because the ideas themselves were bad, but because they wouldn't believe a woman like Reese Witherspoon could carry off a business proposition. They just don't culturally believe that women can carry that. Um, and, and she's proved that wrong time after time after time across long form streaming production as well as cinema production. And I think it's we can look back on those examples as well. They are people, they're individuals who recognise that within the studio system themselves, they're fighting a losing battle because they are just a point of value within the, a long a system. They're not able to wrest power from the beast. The beast rules, as it were. It's a machine and you're a cog in a machine. If you want to be anything more than a cog in a machine, you have to leave and start your own machine, essentially. When I asked Shelley Stamp about the ways that women have pushed back against the studio system, she also made the link to present-day Hollywood and the problems that female actors still face in getting good roles. There seems to be more evidence of women pushing back and women wanting control, which I agree with you, that suggests that there's more problematic roles, right? Or that there are parts they don't want to play. And this is a battle that I'm I'm sure many actresses would tell you about today, right? That the persistent sidelining of female characters into marginal parts, the, you know, the absence of substantial roles, particularly for women over a certain age. I mean, and, and, and luckily we have 
statistical evidence now from, you know, the inclusion initiative at USC, from Gina Davis's institute, from Marshall Lawson's work at San Diego State University, all the statistical evidence to show us that, yes, it's true, <laughs> right, that, that, all, that it's not just individual experiences of actresses, that really the speaking parts for women, that the screen time for female characters is way below that for male actors and male characters. So yeah, it's a battle that's still being fought, I'm sure. Now, to be clear, you know, it's not that these women aren't trying to change the system. It's that they're up against film studio boards that are still male-dominated. It's that many studios are still male-run. And it's the fact that they're up against a system where assumptions are still made about who matters most as an audience member and who matters most in terms of persuading people to get out of the house and go to the cinema. We're still convinced and we're still operating under this studio system that assumes that male stories are more important than female stories and that male filmmakers, male stars are more valuable to the system than their female equivalents. Maybe you were right at the beginning, the studio era hasn't really ever ended and that spectre that existed from the 1920s to the late 1940s is essentially still with us. So thanks so much to my guests today, Shelley Stamp and Susan Kemp. And you can follow the links in our show notes to find out more about them and their work, which I highly recommend you doing. And we've also come to the end of this episode of Women vs. Hollywood. But before you go, here's my guest's recommendations for underrated female-led films that you may have missed. Here's Shelley. I'm going to recommend Ida Lupino's Not Wanted, which is, you know, one of a series of films that she made at her independent production company, The Filmmakers. And it's about pregnancy outside of marriage. So it takes on a social issue that the industry was really not making films about at that point. And it takes on that issue from a female perspective. So it it uses cinematic techniques in its sound design, in its cinematography, to really engage with female subjectivity through flashback, through oral memories. And it deals with sexual desire, female sexual desire. It deals with pregnancy and the experience of childbirth from a female perspective. So it's really an extraordinary film. And here's Susan. Obviously, Mark Cousins, with his Women Make Film, has created this fantastic database of under-recognized work, which feels really good. And there's one in there that I would say that I would want to mention, which is The Day I Became a Woman. It's a wonderful film. And it, more people should see it. It's Iranian uh, and it, it's absolutely gorgeous, but not on the list. And I thought, but actually being even the fact it exists in that database means that it's, it's not underrated um, to the degree. And I think there's a film by a German, East, former East German filmmaker called Sibylla Schoenemann called Verriegelte Zeit, which is translates as locked up time, which is um, after she was imprisoned because she requested right to leave East Germany, East Berlin, and it was in prison for a year. And then when the wall came down, she went back to make a film about her year of imprisonment. And it's an astonishing piece of work and doesn't get enough recognition. So yeah, I'd recognise that. Now you can find a list of all the films recommended by our guests in the show notes. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Women vs. Hollywood. I've been your host, Helen O'Hara, and you can find my book, Women vs. Hollywood, The Fall and Rise of Women in Film, anywhere that books are sold in the UK. The audiobook is currently available in the US and Canada on Audible, and the book will be released in the US and in Canada on November 9th. If you enjoyed this podcast, please do leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. 
And to find us on social media, use the hashtag Women versus Hollywood and we will find you. That's not a threat. It may have sounded like one. This podcast is produced by Strip Media with our executive producers Kobe Omanaka and Ella Watts and our producer Maddie Searle. The podcast artwork is by Steve Laird. Thank you for listening. I'll see you next time. just heard a stripped media production.